Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Celluloid Junkies. This month we are on the hunt for a serial killer in Fritz Lang's 1931 German thriller M. But Damien, first of all, how are you? Good, thank you, Luke. How are you? I'm good. What have you been up to? I guess just uh, watching a lot of German cinema. Mm, mm. I notice you've got something on your jacket. Oh. It's, it's like a, well, it's like a mark or something. What? What, what is it? I'll just... Here, let me... Yeah, that's better. It's off. Oh, okay. That's a nice ball you're playing with. What's your name? Where do you live, my dear? What's it to do with you where the child lives? Weakness. Probably a deceased brave. In short, someone abnormal. A child murderer. Hindering all our movements. Stopping us from making a living. This child murderer is rousing up the police into such activity that we are helpless. We seem powerless to deal with this murder. What's happened here? Can you hear that? Someone whistling? Where's the man going? You can still see him. Yes, yes. I can see him. Yes. Ah, he's with a small child. Again and again. When I am wandering through the street, a voice whispers to me, someone seems to be following me. I try to run away, but it's useless. I can't escape from myself. Can I just say, just before we get going, that I found the research process for this film very complicated and difficult. Did you find the same thing? There's a lot of material out there about M, so I found it uh, that there was plenty of stuff to research, and that was also part of the problem. There's still almost too much stuff to research. Yeah, so much analysis, and also a lot of conflicting reports about production history, and, you know, it was, it was done 87 years ago. So, I mean, you know, the stories, and, and there's so much conjecture about exactly what happened. What I've tried to do is find, um, you know, two or three sources that confirm whatever I've discovered before I'm going to present it here in this podcast because I want it to be as accurate for our listeners as possible. I have done no such thing. (laughs) So (laughs) I will be a fount of misinformation. (laughs) But you'll have to bear with us. I'm sure that there'll be some things we say that um, are inaccurate or have been misreported and uh, we apologise in advance if, if that's the case. Berlin, 1930. A pioneer of the German Expressionism movement, director Fritz Lang had murder on his mind. And he wasn't the only one. It was a difficult time in post-war Germany. The country was still floundering in the aftermath of the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, which made Germany financially responsible for all damage incurred during the First World War. People were starving. Unemployment numbers soared and the Nazi party was gaining more influence amongst the increasingly embittered working class. To add to this, an unusual number of serial killers were actively terrorising Berlin, depraved men like Hermann, Grossmann and Peter Curtin. 
An avid newsreader, Lung decided his next film would explore this dark social phenomenon. He called it Murderer Among Us. Written as a morality play, it would examine how serial killers upset the social order and would question capital punishment as a viable countermeasure. It would be, as Lang put it, a film based entirely on factual reports and a warning to mothers to keep closer watch over their children. The director later alleged that a representative of the Nazi party threatened to boycott the film, concerned that Lung planned to portray the party in an unfavourable light. The director stressed the screenplay made no reference to Nazis, but agreed to change the title. Some refute this story, claiming that Lung was inspired to change the name for simplicity's sake after shooting the scene where a beggar leaves a chalk mark of the letter M on the back of the killer's jacket. Because his last few films had underperformed, Seymour Nebenzal, head of Nero Film and a friend of Lang's, greenlit the project on a small budget. The upside of that was that Lang had creative freedom to make the movie he wanted without interference. The shoot lasted six weeks in Starken Zeppelhau Studios just outside of Berlin. To better understand his antagonist, Lang spent eight days inside a mental institution where he met several convicted killers. His wife co-wrote the screenplay, though she received no screen credit. Because this was his first sound film, Lung had the script colour-coded to distinguish camera work and action, dialogue and synchronised sound. He cast Peter Lorre as Hans Beckert, the tortured killer, and silent film actor Otto Wernick as Inspector Karl Lohmann. Wernick would even reprise his role as Lohmann in Lung's next film, The Testament of Dr. Mabuse. Many legends surround the making of M. For the police raid on the underground pub sequence, Lung allegedly hired real criminals. When the police found out, he made a deal with them that they could arrest the men once he'd finished filming, but proceeded to give them the wrong time, so that when the police arrived, the criminals had already left. Another story involves Lung hurling Peter Lorre down a staircase during the climactic kangaroo court scene, so that the actor looked sufficiently battered when he delivered his tortured monologue. How much of these stories is true, so many years later, is hard to say. M was released in Germany on May 11, 1931. It received unenthusiastic reviews and underperformed financially. In the US, Lung's original version was pulled from movie houses after two weeks and replaced by an inferior, shorter version in which much of the film had been reshot in English, with Peter Lorre reprising his role. But M's reputation grew over time thanks to advocates like Truffaut and Bogdanovich, and rightly so. It introduced film noir before the term had entered the popular vernacular. Its dense, layered sound design set a new industry standard. The leitmotif of Beckett's whistling, which alerts the audience to the killer's presence before he is seen, became a common motif, most notably used in Spielberg's Jaws. Similarly, Lang's experimental use of voiceover to blend together disparate scenes paved the way for Scorsese's Goodfellas. In 1995, 500 German film historians selected M as the best German film ever made. 87 years on, it remains a haunting illustration of a disturbed mind and of a community in peril. Come with us as we peel back the mysteries and milestones of M. So, Damien, what do you think of M? Tell me about when you first saw it. I only watched M for the first time in January of this year. I had gone on a bit of a spending spree 
on uh, Amazon and eBay and bought a bunch of Criterion collections and Masters of Cinema releases and a lot of those I hadn't seen before. M was one of them. Its reputation kind of preceded it and I knew that at some point in my life I had to watch this film. And I'm very glad I did because M is quite frankly one of the most remarkable films I've ever seen. It has immediately made its way to near the top of my list of the greatest films of all time. It ushered in not only new genres, but new ways of using sound. It's been the blueprint for the serial killer film, the police procedural, even many horror films made since. It was a political film without being overt, and a commentary on both general society's virtues and vices. It is one of the greatest examples of why German cinema was among the best in the world, if not the best entirely, in the 1920s and 30s. The days of not only Fritz Lang, but also F.W. Murnau, Robert Weiner, and Danish director Carl Theodor Dreyer. M is the dawn of the film noir genre which took over Hollywood for the next 15 years and is the greatest example of such a film despite not being from Hollywood. Lung himself would make many of the prime examples of the film noir and even he himself stated that M remained his most accomplished film. I believe it is impossible to overstate the importance of this film in any way. It is not only a breathtaking example of all of the things it sets out to be but it is a pioneering film in many more ways than one. Hmm. I agree with you. It is often cited as the blueprint for the modern crime film. I mean, you can see its influences in things like L.A. Confidential, Silence of the Lambs, so many films. I like that the film isn't so much about the killer as it is about reactions to the killer, the community's reaction to the killer. And I think the first thing that struck me when I watched M, because I watched it after you had said you have to see this film... I had, like, a terrible fight with everybody that I lived with and stormed out and went to Damien's house, and he was out, so the house was empty, and I just sat there and just put it on a, on a whim and loved it. But the thing that struck me about it was its scope. I mean, the film has so much scope. You feel like you go everywhere. When I found out in my research that this was made on a small budget, I couldn't believe it. It feels epic. It feels like D.W. Griffith's epic. And uh, in your intro, you said that it was shot on a, at a studio. Yeah, soundstage. Entirely on a soundstage, yeah. was it? It certainly doesn't feel like it. It feels uh, far more involved in, in the way that it sets up this city. Yeah. Uh, it feels like it's shot on location, which I guess was almost impossible back then for a film of this scope. The important thing to recognise about M is its objectivity, visually, because the camera is like the eye of God. It can go anywhere, can see anything. You know, it just darts from one person to the other. In many ways, the film doesn't have a lead because it sort of pays equal measure to everybody, to, to so many disparate, different people. And we see its objectivity not just in terms of its scope, but in terms of the camera angles. You know, there's a lot of wide shots. They're very simplistic. There's not a lot of heavy visual manipulation. When the camera moves, it tends to be fairly simple, and it's just to show you whatever it needs to show you. There's no score to manipulate our experience of watching the film. And there's this emphasis on material objects like clocks, times, dates, maps, documents, inventories. You know, we get all those shots of the cigarettes lined up or the shots of the underground pub raid when they, all of their wares and, and everything are lined out, all the things that the police have confiscated. We get that opening shot where the mother kept, keeps looking at the clock and we see it's 12. Oh, now it's 10 past 1. You know, it, you could, it's almost like a visual news report. You can see that he's just taken a line that could be essentially a newspaper report and visualised it. 
And I think that that's really impressive and unusual. And that ties into the idea of this being a police procedural. Anybody who's interested in NCIS or Criminal Minds or any of those uh, kind of hack job, shall we say, TV shows these days, even today, those TV shows are far less thorough than what is shown in the movie M. Yes. In terms of, you know, not even looking at the, the killer, but in terms of the procedure that the police officers go through to try to capture the killer in this movie. Uh, M still stands as a very thorough documentation of that. Another thing that's interesting is that even though visually the film is quite objective, sound is used in a very subjective way. And I think most of that had to do with the fact that Lung couldn't shoot the whole film in sound for budgetary reasons. So, you know, only two thirds of the film ultimately was shot using sound. And he chose to deal with this limitation by using sound dramatologically or as a as an artistic device. So very often when characters are having an intense conversation, the the sound of the city will disappear. And that's what happens to us in life. You know, if you're talking to someone and you get really engrossed, you kind of forget the world around you and you don't hear what's what you're hearing. There's very often some surprising choices that Lung makes. Like when the police originally raid the pub, we get that bird's eye shot of the street and the police are coming in and they're grabbing people and it would be a very loud, rowdy scene with car traffic and screaming, but we don't hear anything. It's done in dead silence. And the sound comes back suddenly with the blow of a horn and suddenly the sound is all around us. So very often... Lung uses sound in an ironic way almost, uh, in, an, in a very unexpected way where you would think there would be sound that isn't. But then he'll record sound in a quiet moment. That's right. He, he records sound in the moment where uh, Beckett is holed up in the office building. Yes. And uh, trying to keep quiet. I mean, that would have been the perfect opportunity for him to be completely silent, but he's chosen to actually put some sound in that section. I think we've sort of discussed in my introduction where Lung was and where Germany was at the time, briefly. I don't think we need to go into it too much. It was a very difficult period in, in Germany's history and it was a, a time of change and of enormous change on the horizon. Well, that's right. I mean, the years preceding M, uh, especially the year before it was made, was um, just a huge surge by the Nazi Party and the election results. The Nazi Party was founded in 1920 and uh, Adolf Hitler, who became their leader, was the 55th member of the party. And they began contesting elections in 1924 and had 6.5% of the vote, which fell to 3% later that year, and just 2.6% in 1928. So essentially they were a non-factor at that time. They were about the eighth biggest political party. And then came the Great Depression, which resulted in mass unemployment and gross private economic failures. And Hitler campaigned that this was largely the fault of Jews who were in charge of much of the country's finances, and this resonated with his voting base. In the 1930 elections, so the year before M was released, the Nazi Party achieved 18.3% of the vote and officially usurped the Nationalist Party as the second largest in the country. Hitler officially challenged for the presidency in 1932 and in July of that month the Nazi Party were for the first time voted into power. And so they went from 1928 from 810,000 votes to 6.4 million just two years later. So that is a huge surge. Also a clear indication that when M went into production, uh, German socialism was in full swing. 
And uh, Roger Ebert wrote, By 1931, the Nazi party was on the march in Germany, although not yet in full control. His own wife would later become a party member. He made a film that has been credited with forming two genres, the serial killer and the police procedural, and he filled it with grotesques. Was there something beneath the surface, some visceral feeling about his society that this story allowed him to express? Certainly M is a portrait of a diseased society, one that seems even more decadent than the other portraits of Berlin in the 30s. Its characters have no virtues and lack even attractive vices. What I sense is that Lang hated the people around him, hated Nazism, and hated Germany for permitting it. It's interesting. I don't really think of M as particularly self-loathing film, but maybe he's right. Maybe there is something to that. I think the commentary on society, the commentary, the equation of the um, police and the government with the criminal underworld, which is prevalent throughout this movie. Mm. And the blurring of those lines. Yeah, well, that's, I guess, how he equates them. So, I mean, you know, at this time, one of the strange things about (laughs) this time in um, Germany was this influx of serial killers, which weren't just your average serial killers either. We had Harmon, who was convicted of raping and murdering 27 men. He cut them up and sold their meat to butcher shops, telling them that it was pork. And he was executed in 1925. Then we had Grossman. Uh, he had up to 50 victims between 1913 and 1920. He sold their flesh at a hot dog stand he kept at the railway station. And he took his victims from the same station where he was selling their meat. He committed suicide when he was arrested. And then the serial killer that is most commonly discussed in terms of M as being M's inspiration, although Fritz Lung denied it, was Peter Curtin, who had between 9 and 30 victims, some of whom were believed to be children, and he was executed in 1931. So we had all of these killings and all of these executions pervading German media at the time. And, you know, also Peter Curtin, it took them 15 months to capture him. So there would have been, at the time, this incredible emphasis on this unknown deviant in the streets the difficulty the police face in capturing him, and then also the executions that would be making the newspapers. So you can understand very much why all of this would have been in sort of Lung's headspace when he he set out to do M, and why he would have felt it was such a topical, important film to make. I don't know why there's such a focus among those killers on cannibalism, but, you know, Peter Curtin was known as the Vampire of Dusseldorf and apparently drank the blood of his victims, and Harmon and Grossman cooked their victims. Yeah, well, some have suggested that the increase in serial killers was, uh, they were the creations of a society thrown into total chaos after World War One. but others think this is too neat, and they would argue that the post-war chaos simply unleashed their desires, made it easier for them. A similar thing happened in Russia in 1991 with the fall of the Soviet Union. The nation was plagued with a series of cannibalistic sex killers. So there are some theories out there that <laughs> there are some theories out there that this sort of these sort of um, political upheavals can, for whatever reason, draw out all of these these killers. Kind of lends credence to the idea that Lang and von Harbaugh, Lang and von Harbaugh did not base this film on Peter Curtin because he's not actually mentioned in the movie, although Harmon and Grossman both are. Mm. And since Curtin was active at the time of M, you think if they'd based uh, any of this movie or written a screenplay around him, he would have been mentioned. Now, Fritz Lang obviously rose up with the... Uh, 
German Expressionism movement. He was one of its pioneers. And uh, German Expressionism, it was a trend in cinema that was isolated within Germany, mostly because of what was happening politically at the time. And it presents a sort of distorted version of reality that is very exaggerated to reflect the inner turmoil of the characters and to elicit a more emotional response from the audience rather than being uh, something that you would look at and go, oh, yeah, that's, that's the world I live in. Uh, it was inspired by painters like Van Gogh, Edward Monk and El Greco. So very abstract, strange, lots of jagged lines, lots of, lots of edges. A lot of this we actually don't see in M. Uh, Lung has broken away from it. We do see it occasionally, most notably the shot where Peter Laurie's silhouette comes over the poster and it's this really big, exaggerated silhouette and the poster's really big and large. So you can see the uh, German Expressionism influences in the film, but mostly I think Lung is going for something far more realistic and lucid and sedate here than he was in his earlier work. Certainly watching M is not like watching A Cabinet of Dr Caligari where there are paintings on the walls to signify hills and buildings and there's skewed um, kind of visuals of what these things would be. So M is not, in the typical sense, the, I guess, prototypical German Expressionist movie. It has moved beyond that and Lang has moved beyond that. I mean, his metropolis of years before was, was like that. Yeah, absolutely. But he has, uh, I guess, changed a lot of his filmmaking as a response to Metropolis and The Woman in the Moon and some of his earlier movies as well. There are some stories, there's a particularly famous story Lung likes to tell about meeting Joseph Goebbels, the Minister of Propaganda, in 1933. Goebbels had been uh, an admirer of Metropolis and he offered Fritz Lung a job as head of German propaganda film production. Lung accepted because he was terrified He apparently said to Goebbels, you know, I'm half Jewish. And Goebbels said to him, we decide who is Jewish. Lung that very night says that he fled Germany, couldn't even get his money. But there are bits of evidence that refute this. Lung is mentioned nowhere in Goebbels' diary, which he meticulously kept at the time. Um, He's not mentioned at all. And Lung's passport actually shows he did make several trips back to Germany after this alleged encounter. So... Lung is not someone you can necessarily believe. He tells tall tales, I think, but he or exaggerates at the very least. But he's still very entertaining, and you know, he—I think it took him about half an hour to tell that story to uh, the interviewer. He just really—he told it like it was this great epic drama. M begins with a bird's eye view of neighbourhood children standing in a circle playing an elimination game. And this foreshadows the game that the community is going to play to track down the killer. We've got a girl standing in the middle and her arms are like the digits of a clock and she's bumping people out. It's exactly what the whole film is going to be. It's interesting that the film begins in with a black screen and we first hear this nursery rhyme that the children have created about this boogeyman who they call, I think, the man in black. So our first impression of the killer is through the lens of these children who have kind of mythicised him uh, by turning him into a nursery rhyme. And this is the first of many different perspectives we're going to get on this child murderer. This uh, bird's eye view of the children standing in a circle is reminiscent of a clock, and this is echoed again moments later when we get those recurring shots of the cuckoo clock that Elsie's mother keeps checking as she's waiting for her daughter to arrive home. And this is what I was talking to you earlier about how we see it's midday, then we see it's ten past one, which again brings us, this emphasises the particulars and the idea that this is essentially a visual news report. 
This is really the first, obviously, <laughs> being the opening scene of the movie, it's the first instance that a lot of what uh, makes M great comes into view. For me, M is a, a huge amount about audio and about sound, but it is also about how that works with the visual. You even get this uh, reference in the dialogue from the script that, uh, you know, as long as we can hear the children, at least we know they're there. That's, uh, I guess, then immediately turned on its head because you stop hearing the children and it's been set up for you that as soon as you stop hearing the children, you know they're not there. So you know that there's probably something wrong and those visuals that are occurring on the screen, they're looking at the clock and, and all of this stuff that you've just gone over. I mean, they, they tie together to tell this story without actually showing anything. I mean, you don't see Elsie get kidnapped. You don't see the killer. You don't see any of this stuff. You know Elsie's dead because there's an empty bowl at the table, there's a ball that rolls to a stop in a field, and there's a balloon that's in the overhead power lines flying by itself. That's it. And those shots are so heartbreaking. Yeah. I, I remember just, you know, the first time I saw the film being so struck by them. At this point, you know that that silhouette that you saw is the killer. It's it's ironically transposed over a poster about him. Mm-hmm. But you know, hey, this is the killer. And that means that this film is not going to be a whodunit. It's not an is he or isn't he like Hitchcock's The Lodger a few years earlier. This is a film about uh, an act and about people. And it's not trying to confuse you. It's not trying to say, is this person the killer? Is he not the killer? Who's the killer? I mean, you're always one step ahead of the audience in that way. Because at the start, we know that this shadow... And we will come to know that that is represented, and and through the use of the leitmotif, that is Hans Beckett. This shadow is the killer. This girl's gone missing. She is his victim. That's it. The process that you go through in this movie is that you are watching the general population, uh, the police and the criminal underworld, come to that conclusion that Hans is the killer, and then they are looking for specifically him when they find him then you get the obviously the climax of the movie the trial but at no point is this film trying to confuse you and say is he isn't he who's the killer it's not trying to play games like that it's mm-hmm. just it's very straightforward in that respect in a sense the the suspense is not well it's obviously not who is the killer because as you say we know who the killer is the suspense is is this town going to fold in on itself with hysteria before this killer is caught because we get these incredible shots, incredible sequences where we see the town having these insane reactions to this fear. And it begins when Beckett writes the letter to the media. And there's actually a couple of lines where people say, well, you know, this really wasn't, a, it's really not a problem once they had it contained within the police department. But now that the public are aware that this is happening, we have a real problem, the pressure really mounts for them to find this killer because they know that this is going to cause all kinds of panic. I mean, there had already been the sign uh, that that Beckett's shadow was uh, superimposed over at the start. So they already knew about the crime. They already knew about the victims. There was a killer out there. And then there is this reference to the letter and Beckett writes in that letter, since the police didn't publish my letter, I've gone directly to the press. So um, he is kind of, I guess, inciting a fire that is already burning. Yes. At that at that point, I, I, he's not setting the fire and making this uh, public uh, pandemonium. 
it's already there. You can see that at the start. They want this. They want this uh, news report to be read. I'll read it from the front. Read it out loud so we can all hear about it because everybody's so interested about it. Extra, extra. There's just all these newspapers being sold and everything. So mm. I mean, he's just. I guess he's not setting the fire, but he's certainly adding fuel to the fire. Well, that's right. And uh, this is something that, especially in 20th century serial killers, that we come to know is quite prevalent. Writing to the media. Uh, writing to newspapers, yeah. you know, the Zodiac Killer, uh, countless others as well. So, I mean, I'm not sure how often this occurred uh, prior to M. I believe Peter Curtin wrote to the media. Right. But he wasn't involved in the movie. No. <laughs> no he wasn't. But certainly funny. his crimes were being committed while the film was being written. Mm. So even though, you know, there would have been no opportunity for Lung to base Beckert on curtain because he was unknown at that time certainly the behaviors of the killer he may have you know picked up picked up on some of those let's just talk a little bit about how Beckett is seen uh because as you say we see him first in this large exaggerated shadow which is has to be one of the most famous screen entrances of all time i think well, I love that that shadow is just, it is over the poster that is going through exactly, you know, there's a reward for his capture. The fact that the shadow is so large and the fact that it is a shadow tells you that this is a menacing character. Also, it's set against, as you say, that poster saying reward for unknown killer. And then we have the, the shadow looking down at Elsie, which again is, is, is a frightening visual. Who is off screen. Who is off screen. Yeah. Another interesting thing, actually, just before that, Elsie almost gets hit by a car, and the car that goes past her is off screen. So Lung constantly has these moments in the film where we sense that the jeopardy or the threat is outside of the frame. And this is an idea that occurs again and again, that it is the world at large, it is what you cannot see, where the danger is. That's right. Uh, Lung repeatedly uses sound from off screen before showing or instead of showing uh, action on screen. And this ties into that he doesn't show the murders at all, but he allows the audience to imagine them. And by not showing the action in many scenes, again, audience are asked to imagine what's happened or what is happening. They will often assume the worst because of the nature of the atmosphere that is created by this movie. It's that old adage of don't show the shark. Our imagination posits all these horrors that couldn't possibly come up. I actually heard Lung talking about it to, I think, Bogdanovich. And he said, what is most horrifying to me about child murder, as in where exactly I might place the camera, where I might put the emphasis, will be different for somebody else. So rather than nuance it to what frightens me, I didn't nuance it. I just left it empty so that everybody was forced to then fill in the blank with their most upsetting intimate horrors. Mm. The soundtrack includes a narrator, sounds occurring off camera, sounds motivating action, and uh, these moments of silence before sudden noise. And uh, Lang was able to, because of this, make uh, fewer cuts in films editing since the sound effects could now be used to inform the narrative. Mm. The first time we see Beckert clearly is when uh, we have a... A handwriting analyst. A handwriting analyst looking over the letter and he's dictating his analysis to um, his stenographer. Yeah. And he's going through what this killer would be like. You know, he'll he'll have sadistic impulses. um, He'll be uh, someone who's... He's got sexual urges and uh, then he caps it off by saying that he's mad. The manner in which some of the letters are broken 
and the irregularity of the downstrokes indicate a decidedly theatrical nature. These things are also an indication of laziness, and these letters as a whole leave the impression that uh, the writer at times develops some acute form of uh, insanity. And uh, you're looking at Becker in the mirror trying to see this madman that other people obviously see. That's right, yeah, like he's pulling back his lips, trying to make himself... or, 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 or wondering, am I crazy? Because Beckett isn't crazy. And interestingly, with Peter Curtin, Peter Curtin was the first serial killer uh, upon which a psychological profile was done by, I guess, psychologists or, or the equivalent of them at the time. And they came up with 17 facts or 17 uh, observations that were supposed to help police find him. And when Peter Curtin was finally captured, 16 of those 17 were proven correct. The one that wasn't was he's insane because Peter Curtin was perfectly sane. And that actually set the police back because they were looking at, you know, uh, mental asylums, previously released people from institutions and so on. And and Peter Curtin didn't raise any of those flags. He lived a, a very normal life. And Beckett is portrayed in the same way. So Lung had this kind of prescience about what we would generally see with uh, the psychopathic serial killer mind. Beckett's a very accurate, modern, accurate and vivid portrayal of how we've come to know serial killers behave and operate. However, there is uh, there is a... A, a certain element of madness when it comes to Beckett. The the handwriting analyst is, I don't know how you can tell that from handwriting, but the handwriting analyst is correct in that sense and it's vital in the last scene That's true. of this movie. Okay, we're going to take a little break and play our interview with Sam Deegan. She is associate editor of Diabolique magazine and co-host of the Daughters of Darkness podcast. Her uh, book on Fritz Lang's M is upcoming and she agreed to have a word with us. I was curious about why you chose M as your next project to write about. That's not an easy one to answer. I guess I've always really loved the film. I'm a longtime fan of Peter Lorre and have always wanted to do more writing about his work. And of course, Fritz Lang is one of my favorite directors. So kind of the more I can do about him, the happier I see on uh, Diabolique you've done a, a lot of Fritz Lang, um, a lot of Fritz Lang writing. So you've done the three-part series on his silent films, as well as The Big Heat and Doctor Mabuza, The Gambler, Destiny, and you started doing Blu-ray reviews on there. So I saw Spies and Woman in the Moon. So, but you haven't done any or much writing about M on that website. When I knew that I was going to do the book on M, I tried not to do as much kind of public writing about it. And a lot of the themes kind of cross over, which is one of the reasons that I love his films. Like he does all of, especially in those early years, he works in all these different genres, but has these really interesting themes that cross over. So some of the things that I write about for like Destiny or especially Mabuza also gets covered in the M book. I only recently saw M and I was blown away by 
its modernity, you know, by how contemporary it feels. The film was not shot in actual Berlin, but was shot at a soundstage. But even though you know it's it's obviously an early sound film, there's not a lot of dialogue, and it just it never feels to me like it's 1931. It, it feels, like you said, so strangely modern. There was this point when we were recording this podcast where... Luke said to me that it had been recorded on a soundstage and I hadn't read any of that. I had, I didn't know the history of that. In fact, both of us just saw this film before this podcast for the first time, so this year. And I was shocked that it was shot on a soundstage because it feels like there are no such limitations in the film. Uh, he's, he's obviously overcome any limitations from shooting on a soundstage by just creating this world that seems so real. I honestly don't know how he did that. I mean, if you compare M to some of the films of Pabst, like The Lost Girl or Pandora's Box, they sort of depict cities in a in a similar way, but they Pabst goes a little bit more for realism, whereas I think the way that Lung embraces this kind of what I guess I would maybe call like semi-realism, it's almost more effective because he doesn't date the film as much that way, but it blows me away every time. It's a, there's an interesting conflict, isn't there? I, I like that you call it a semi-realism because there's definitely that feeling in the film, but there's also, uh, you know, the way that he... It feels almost like a documentary as well in the way that it sort of shoots... Um, he pays particular attention to inventories and items and facts. So you've got this kind of strange conflict in the film between an almost fable-like semi-realism but also uh, an extreme realism in the sense that he has this documentarian eye. One of the things about that that has become my like more recent obsession because if you if you watch the film again I think you'll notice and maybe this is just me being obsessed with it but every time I watch it I notice something different and my sort of more recent thing is I watched it as a double feature with Hitchcock's The Lodger, which is from a similar time period, also about a serial killer in a major city. But they both do this really interesting thing where they use the media and particular new, particularly newspapers as a way to kind of enhance that documentary feel, while also, and especially in the case of M, it's so otherworldly in a way that I think is just genius. You know, his German expressionism roots certainly play a part in the making of this film, but not in the way that you would traditionally think. You know, you don't get these extreme sets which feel kind of surrealistic and which where things are <clears throat> out of proportion. And yet there is still very much that sense of German expressionism, I think particularly with sound. Did you... Where are you? Where do you stand with them in terms of, you know, him being a, a filmmaker from that school? I think in my head, I had always kind of grouped him in with the German Expressionists because that's how I discovered him when I was a teenager and I started watching things like Nosferatu and Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. That was, I, I think his first film that I saw was Metropolis. Mm. And now that I've seen almost all of his films and certainly all the early ones, I don't think I see him as a German expressionist anymore because he does things differently. 
I would group him more with those sort of realist filmmakers like Pabst than I would with somebody like Robert Vina. And I think if you watch M and Metropolis next to each other, it sort of illustrates the difference. And sometimes for me, it's hard to believe that those two films are made by the same person because the depictions of the cities are just so different. I mean, his use of sound in M is not really anything like later German expressionist films. It's it's almost like he... I feel like this is a weird thing to say, but it's almost like he was directing a musical. The way that the use of sound is so intentional and so kind of sparingly used in a weird way. We talk a bit in this episode about, uh, I guess there's this reputation that M is, you know, the first serial killer film, the first police procedural. It was the, the kicking off of a lot of different genres. And obviously he went... Uh, very far into film noir when he was in Hollywood as well. And when we say the first serial killer film, obviously there was The Lodger and there was The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari beforehand. I mean, what what are your comments on, on you know him initiating a lot of those genres? One of the many reasons why I love him is because he's sort of kind of ahead of that curve, particularly where thrillers and crime films are concerned. And so I grew up watching horror movies, and, and I love a lot of them still, but as a film writer, I would almost rather prefer to write about film noir and thrillers and crime films than straight horror films. And I think Long does something really interesting with M that Hitchcock does not do with The Lodger. The Lodger is essentially still a whodunit. It's, you know, you know that someone is a serial killer and Hitchcock seems to be suggesting that the titular lodger is responsible, but you never find out who the killer is. Like, you're just sort of told at the end of the film that he's been kidnapped, and therefore, you know, your suspicions were on the wrong person. But Long takes the complete opposite approach with M and lets you know from almost the opening frames that the protagonist of the film is the serial killer. And I think that was something super new in cinema. And so I I guess I do think M is the first, like, proper serial killer film, if that makes sense. That would be the obvious choice, wouldn't it? You know, to sort of make it as... Yeah, yeah, but he he doesn't. He creates tension in a different way. Uh, He creates tension in the sense that you just really determined... Well, you're really determined to find out whether or not this, this killer is going to be captured and this community is going to be... to be okay. You know, we're talking about that conflict between surrealism but also the the objectivity. Another interesting conflict is that the sound, that the visuals are so objective, but the sound is very subjective. Very often the sound uh, is um, conveying a particular character's experience at that moment, like when the old man puts his hand over his ears. I love that moment. I love that too. In fact, I remember when I first saw the film being so touched by all of the sequences with the homeless men. Yeah, and that's really interesting because I do think that that particular element is something that kind of makes the film feel more realist because, so that sort of band of organized homeless people and organized beggars was a real thing in Berlin, and you see them turn up in Three Penny Opera as well, but... In M, a lot of them were not actors. They were extras hired 
from the streets. So it again, it adds this really like a humanizing element and also lots of unexpected humor, which I think he, he does so well throughout his films. But maybe not, maybe humor is the wrong word here, but like warmth. Absolutely. Yeah, there is definitely. I mean, when um, Dusterman taps his wooden leg, for instance. I mean, it's a simple little moment, but it's, it's very humanist. I think they provide such an important contrast to Hans Beckert's character, who is, I mean, obviously he's human. I, I don't think Long is trying to say, you know, here is this sort of Frankenstein-type monster creature that everyone's hunting down. But I think he, he uses the homeless men to... Sh- show a kind of different range of humanity, maybe. Like, he he weirdly and very subtly kind of shows this full spectrum of people who are affected. Yeah, it's amazing how his camera is like the eye of God, you know, and and that there is no... Even though, obviously, you have Lohmann and you have Becker, which I guess the film favours, but really, it is, like, very objectively on a community at large. I love the scope of his camera and the scope of that voice. And it's so unusual. I can't even imagine the thought process that would take you from saying, okay, let's make a film about a true crime subject. I mean, he, so his wife at the time, well, ex-wife, uh, Taya von Harbo, wrote, he, they wrote the film together. And it was supposed to be about, I think, uh, somebody who wrote Poison Pen Letters in Berlin and he found the story about different serial killers in the newspaper more interesting, but I guess I don't even understand the thought process of how you say, okay, I'm going to make a film about this killer, how that turns into such a rich film about a whole community, because using, sort of using that kind of like group atmosphere is so unusual. I mean, even now, most films have a set protagonist or two or three protagonists. They don't look at a whole community in the same way. Can I ask you, Sam, with regards to your book, is it going to be, do you take a look at the film's production history or are you trying to focus more on sort of film analysis? So it's mostly film analysis, but there is definitely production history in there as well. One of my issues writing about it is that it's already been written about a lot, Mm. so I felt like I wanted to try to not say the same thing that every other book says and explore the themes that really interested me. So, I mean, you can't talk about things like the impact of sound without getting into some of the production in terms of how he was able to achieve those things, but it's definitely more slanted towards analysis. Did you find you came across, because when we were doing research for the film, so many conflicting stories and so many stories that couldn't be validated. Did you have that? Did you run into that issue at all? Yes, so many. And so one of of my favorite things about Lang is he, sort of like Hitchcock, I guess, a little bit, sort of like maybe a later director like Fassbender, I think really, really puts this emphasis on creating his own mythology and creating his own story that, would change over the years like the I'm sure you know the story of how he fled uh Nazi Germany (laughs) and it's just like when when people went back and did research it was like okay well that's not actually true like you didn't (laughs) leave 
the day after meeting Goebbels, and there's not even an official record of his meeting with Goebbels. I think it would be hard for, if you were, so if you were trying to do a book on M that was just kind of straight facts, straight production history, I think it would be difficult. I mean, obviously, because none of these people are alive anymore, but I think it would be difficult because of the way he controlled the accounts of his life, especially in those early years, I find super fascinating, <laughs> but obviously it makes difficult. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think he was um, like a dramatist in every sense, even as you say about sort of creating the story around his own life. Film criticism and cinema studies, people always talk about auteur theory and what makes someone an auteur. And I think someone like Roman Polanski, Long, I think, extends that sort of auteur theory way of directing into directing his own life in a way that I think is definitely very interesting. I mean, I don't know if you came across this, but before he was married to Taya von Harbo, he had another wife who I believe killed herself, and Long was sort of, I guess, briefly under suspicion. Like, I don't think they thought he murdered her, but I think there was sort of some confusion about her death. And from what I understand... People didn't really find out about this until decades later, and he just kind of tried to bury the whole thing. <laughs> no, I didn't hear that. That's incredible. Yeah, it's these, like, half stories that researchers uncover started to uncover in the 70s and 80s because they went back and looked at all the paperwork and all the documentation. But I think when asked about things directly in interviews, he just... I mean, that. I, so I love that interview that he does with Friedkin, but I think it's an example of just how strong his personality was and how he really would just kind of steamroll the direction of the conversation in the way that he wanted it to go. <laughs> um, it's really interesting that he would, uh, I guess, try to deflect from the truth in some way, whether he was storytelling or he just didn't want people to know the truth about certain things in his life, and yet his politics and his personal opinions are so prevalent in some of his films. Yeah, and that's something that's really interesting to me because I don't think people talk about Lung as a political filmmaker. I mean, certainly Paps is discussed that way sometimes, and I mean, obviously the major figure would be Bertolt Brecht, but for me, Lung is a super political filmmaker. I mean... Even the early American films he made, pretty much Mabuza could be lumped into this category, M. I mean, they're all about these questions of guilt and responsibility, but in a way that kind of overlaps with Hitchcock's treatment of the same material, but is, I guess, maybe a little bit more like someone like Otto Preminger, who looked at kind of law and the way the legal system impacts people's lives in a way that I, I think is so fascinating and that I don't think gets talked about enough, like in terms of Long's films. Yeah, and, you know, the central question of M about serial murder and, and how we as a society should deal with serial murder is a question that we're still asking ourselves today. I don't know, maybe that's another way that the film feels so modern is that it's not afraid to show how horrible Beckert's crimes are and how much they impact this whole community while at the same time, and I think this is what, for me, makes it 
a more complex and more compelling film than something like Silence of the Lambs is that it really humanizes the killer and it shows how tormented he is and that there's no easy solution. Like, this isn't a monster that they as a community have to destroy in order to go through some kind of catharsis. It's it's very clear in the second half of the film that he does need to be stopped, but that there's going to be a communal price to whatever they decide to do. I mean, Lung is very good at, <clears throat> especially in you know the kangaroo court scene, making you feel sympathetic for Beckert, and then making you feel sick that you feel sympathetic for Beckert. Yeah, he is really great at making you feel sort of repulsed with yourself. Like, (laughs) not only in terms of making you uncomfortable sympathizing with Beckert, I think he does this really interesting thing for me that is something I have sort of struggled to write about because I'm not really sure how to phrase it, but he does this thing where... You sympathize with the mothers, but by the end of the film, you come to be kind of sickened by them, too. Their sort of bloodthirstiness, and that weird scene at the end of the film where you're in the actual courthouse, and it's just this quick shot of the three mothers looking just distraught, but also enraged that they weren't able to have the kind of violent end that they wanted to have. It's... It's very twisted. Yeah. You feel the futility of, of, of justice or, you know, their their justice when she says, well, this is not going to bring them back. And I guess that just points to the central conundrum of the whole situation, that really there is no, there is no solving, solving it really. No. And I think that's something that filmmakers have struggled with in terms of films not only about serial murder but also films about sexual violence is this concept that you can never really go back to the way things were before but what's the appropriate solution like is it an eye for an eye is it the death penalty is it you know vigilante justice and i think long gets ahead of the curve of all those sorts of overlapping cinematic themes with with M. Some of the dialogue in that in that kangaroo court scene is just some of them it's so eloquent that it, the way he argues both sides of the issue. Yeah, and you have to wonder I I couldn't find too much about that. So, he did go and interview everyone from police to serial killers to psychiatrists, and so it's interesting to me that he went and, and directors certainly do that now, or screenwriters do that now, but then it was not common at all. So not only do I not understand why he took it upon himself to say, oh, I'll just, you know, I'll go down to the local mental institution and <laughs> interview all these serial killers, but it's just amazing to me that he did this full range of interviews and still manages to feel sympathy for everyone he's depicting while also showing this like kind of full range that everyone is capable of horrible actions Mm, yeah i mean especially he's obviously got these uh these scenes throughout the movie and the round table scene is the most famous uh 
but uh, where he's comparing the criminal underground, this organised crime syndicates with the law enforcement and the government. So I've, I've definitely read a lot of criticism that that talks about this element is that in a, a very cynical way, he's comparing the police to the criminal underground. But I think the way that I've also started to think about it is that it's not even that he's bringing the police down to their level. It's more that no one is given the moral high ground or no one is given moral primacy in the film. Like there's no real voice of authority, which I think is part of what propels the tension in the film is that there's no one you can go to for answers or no one for guidance and no one who really knows how to solve the problem in a way that I think is super fascinating and kind of ties into... So Siegfried Krakauer, who's this uh, historian, wrote on film criticism, he has this thing where he talks about how in... 30s cinema and a little bit 20s cinema in Germany, there are all these kind of fascinating ways of looking at a father figure. And I guess it never really occurred to me until now, but I think Long does this interesting thing with this film where he kind of strips that away. So it's sort of like everyone's wandering around not sure what to do or not sure how to solve this problem. Like there's no authoritative voice. Yeah, I think that's that's actually a really interesting idea. And, you know, especially in this era, I think there was this tendency to make, you know, this is the good guy and this is the bad guy. And you can't really easily pigeonhole anybody in this film, not even Lohmann. I mean, you know, he he's obviously a very, very competent officer and a very, you know, skilled authoritarian figure, but he's not presented as, as pure, He's not presented as the good guy of the film. He's just somebody else trying a particular trying a particular method to get this guy. No, I like that a lot too. It's it's one of my favorite things about the film. It can make it feel a little bit ungrounded, I think. The first time you watch it or the first time you you maybe watch the first act because you're not sure. I think you wait for the director to tell you who to sympathize with and to tell you who to follow. And in this film, he refuses to do that in a way that is kind of sassy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he himself was very sassy, but, but it's just so destabilizing to have that be the kind of focus in a film that's about a serial killer. Yeah, we yeah, kind of have to leave a lot of your, I guess, the film language that we learn. You know, okay, that that's who I'm rooting for. This is their problem, and, and I want them to solve it. You kind of have to leave a lot of that at the door and watch it kind of fresh with really no kind of traditional eye. Yeah, and I think he does that in similar ways. It, it's almost like that particular theme of getting you to leave these preconceived notions at the door is something that I think he seemed to be working through in a lot of those silent films that oftentimes are just so narratively unexpected, which is weird because, you know, it's not like he was responding to decades of cinema. I mean, he's at the beginning of it. So it, it almost doesn't make sense, <laughs> but... But I guess that's why he's such, remembered as such a genius. I mean, even something like Die Nibelungen, 
it follows what you would think would be this kind of typical mythic structure, but also winds up, especially in the second part of the film, being super destabilizing. And it has these similar notions of justice and vengeance in a way that makes you unsure who you're supposed to be sympathizing with and makes you feel uncomfortable when you do sympathize with certain characters. One common thing that I found in my research and in, in reading other people's opinions about this movie is how quickly they are aware that it is a masterpiece as they're watching it. And I think we both experienced that the first time that we watched it as well. It was, it was pretty evident to me within half an hour that this was a very special film that it had, uh, you know, being from 1931 and having seen the result of so many of the uh, conventions that were established in this movie, having seen the result of that in so many movies over the years and then being able to trace it back to, uh, you know, a moment in time and then being able to decipher that, hey, this is, this is a masterpiece. This is, this is where a lot of films, uh, a, a hell of a lot of films got their influence from. There are many films that I love very much, but there are certain films that definitely have the quality you described where as you're watching it, you're watching a film and you're being entertained and you're, you know, paying attention to the actors' performances and the cinematography, but there's also something else going on where you're gradually aware that, like, this is, this is it. Like, this is, like you said, a masterpiece. And, I mean, I know that he considered it his best film, but it's just, I, I get that feeling every time I watch it, and it's such a strange feeling because it pulls you out of the experience of getting lost in the movie. It's It's almost like you see all these different moving parts at once and you realize how kind of immense that is. And I think maybe that's part of what makes it feel so modern. And I think also maybe what, in a way, makes it accessible to newer film fans. Because I know a lot of people, especially people in their teens and early 20s who start out watching film, I think tend to find silent film and older film not very accessible because it does feel so dated and there are these conventions that they're not used to, but this is just totally mm. outside of that. Yeah, this could have been made yesterday. The, 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 the way that it's put together, this could have been made yesterday. Actually, it would be interesting to see how a director would deal with the same material now, particularly in terms of the sexual themes and the violence and the fact that you're dealing with a pedophile and I don't know, it just, it feels so relevant, but I don't know that a director would necessarily be so comfortable making the protagonist sympathetic. I No, I agree. I think especially in today's sort of age where, where, you know, it's very PC, I think it's, it's extremely daring. And I think it's daring that he makes the mothers unsympathetic in a weird way. <laughs> yes. Like, you could have, and, and so they are essentially passive figures. You know, they're not standing up and trying to stab Beckert or kill him themselves. But you could have gone such a different route and had the mothers be these sort of 
quiet kind of crying figures in the background and leave the sort of mob justice to the criminals only, but he doesn't do that. And he puts them front and center in a way that I think a director would have trouble doing if they made this film now. That last shot that you spoke about with the mothers, she looks almost demented with grief, that one mother. (laughs) Like it's a bit frightening, her face and the image. It is. It's almost grotesque. Yes. And it's one of those things that I didn't really... So the first couple times I saw the film over the last, you know, 20 years, I always fixated on the sound design and the cinematography and, of course, Lore. And I don't think I noticed until more recently how horrifying the mothers are. (laughs) And so now, of course, I can't stop thinking about it. But she really just looks so demented at the end of the film. Like, you're scared of her. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. When are we? When do you think we'll get a chance to read your book about him? I think it's supposed to come out in the fall. Okay. So what would that be for us? Because we're obviously... That would be uh, just uh, September, October, November, around then? Yes. Do you know where people can get it? The publishing company is Devil's Advocates, and so they should have it on Amazon once it's published. Yeah, they they do that full line of monographs about horror films, and so their books are pretty easy to find. Yeah, and I think you can get them um, because we did have, we interviewed... Yeah, Alexandra Helen Nicholas, who also contributes to uh, Derbalique magazine, I believe. Yes, and she contributed to the Jean Roland book that I edited. She is the best. I love her. There we go. <laughs> yeah, we had so much fun with her. She was such a lovely guest. And I think I was able to get her book. Um, I was able to order it off of Amazon. So hopefully we'll be able to do the same for yours as, you know, that's an option for our, for listeners who are interested. That's one of the things that I love about working with them is that, you know, they give people the room to write about some really interesting titles, but... They are definitely, I think because they're sort of umbrellaed under a larger publishing company, they're one of the more accessible sort of small print publishers. Yeah, they're great. They are great. Although it was a little bit of a hard sell convincing him that I was going to write about M as a horror movie. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, I think it's totally fair. I think, I think it's, it is certainly a horror film. Okay. It's not supernatural, but it's closer to horror than it is drama or or black comedy or anything else. It's pretty horrifying. Sure, and it even has, I think, a touch of the... So there are all these films throughout the 20s that are kind of obsessed with, and Caligari is probably the most famous example, but all these films that are kind of obsessed with ghosts and these sort of tormented spirits coming back from the dead in the sense that a lot of them were probably, you know, people who died during World War One, and just this whole notion of spirits that won't rest peacefully. And I think even that shows up in M when he, he gives that great monologue where he's tormented by the ghosts of his victims. And so I, I think there's a little sprinkle of that in there. Well, Sam, your uh, your writing is so lucid and it's such beautiful scholarship. I'm really looking forward to, to your book and to your thoughts on it. I think it's going to be wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. What did you stop the child for? Why, nothing at all. 
What are you wanting, anyhow? Very soon, no, my friend, what I want with you. Let me go, you big fool. Have you gone mad? Take your hands off me. You bully. Yeah, yeah. The man What's must be mad. mad. We'll soon find out. Asking child children questions. Teaching the man is off his What's he saying? Trying to find an excuse. And all because the child asked me the time. I didn't speak to her until she asked me first. And do you expect us to believe that? Yes, you'll kidnap me. Let me go, I tell you. Perhaps he's the murderer. No, no, no. Let's the police. So if you think of uh, the majority of uh, movies with sound in the 1930s and uh, I guess we're particularly thinking about Hollywood now and I guess you could look at the films of Joan Crawford and Betty Davis and Humphrey Bogart you see action on screen which corresponds to sound that is occurring you know you don't get this overlapping sound this is 1931 and we're watching this handwriting analyst dictate all of the things that the handwriting indicates to him about Beckett and we're not watching the handwriting analyst we are for the first part but then we're watching Beckett but the voiceover continues and it is just seamless I know that this is normal these days you know this is normal we watch films like this and sound editing is such an important part of it so it's so hard to appreciate it is the significance it is hard to appreciate but it is because of the pioneering sound editing in films like M that it is normal today that scene in particular I think is uh, probably the best example of a simple edit which was ultimately life changing for all of us when it comes to how we view movies it's so bold because Lung must have thought to himself when he did it, well, it's working for me, but he wouldn't have had any precedent upon which to assume that it was going to work for m- modern audiences or contemporary audiences, and yet it did. And also, I mean, a lot of sound recording was done... I mean, sound recording is a little bit different, but a lot of it was put directly onto the corresponding film strip when it was shot. And so to edit it the way it's done is not just a, an amazing feat of sound, it is an amazing, amazing feat of editing and technology that was still in its infancy. I mean, when was the first talking film? It was four years before M. Yeah. Even in the 1920s, I'm sure Germany didn't have anywhere near the budget that Hollywood had. That's right. I think sound had only been being used in Germany with some regularity for just under two years mm. when M came out. And we see all these incredible innovations. We see him using, uh, having people say dialogue when they're not in the shot, even in, in just a regular scene. You know, there'll be somebody talking and they're off camera. That just simply wasn't done. Uh, it wasn't even done regularly in the 40s in America. No, that's right. It, it, it feels like until the 40s in America, they were just catching up mm. with a lot of what M had done. But just sorry, briefly to go back to, to Beckett and how he is how he is photographed. We have so many shots of him seen through filters or mirrors or you know, there's always some way in which we're we're seeing the killer in, in indirectly. And uh, yeah, somewhat obscured. He's um, he's behind those bushes. He's slightly visible behind those bushes when he's having the cognac. Or when he's framed by the row of knives. Yeah. I mean there's so many of them. And I think it does two things. The first thing is it's you know obviously visually symbolic of this man's mental state being conflicted, being impure. The other thing it does is div- put a divider between him and the viewer. 
So in the same way that the city can't get a grip on him, we can't quite get a grip on him. And I think that's partly because we are also put in this uh, position of knowledge and uh, Lung has to take that away from us uh, a little bit. Otherwise, the audience starts to think, well, why don't they just capture him? You know, it's easy. Yeah. We know he's the killer. So you, you have to have this uh, this knowledge kind of shrouded in some kind of mystery for us to suspend disbelief that he wouldn't have been caught so far. Because to us, what he's doing is so obvious. Mm. But to the city, it's not. Yes. And I think the other thing it does is suggest that Beckett is somehow unknowable, perhaps even to himself. You know, we, we never just have a bare, raw shot of Beckett He's always, as you say, obscured or he's there but not there. He's a bit further away than all the other characters are. One of the shots that I love is told in a complete reflection, but we're we're looking into a shop window and we see Beckett reflected and then we focus on Beckett seeing seeing, uh, the little girl who he's going to then follow. Who's also framed by the row of knives. That's right. And that shot of just reflections and how clear it is. And then Peter Laurie's performance in M is brilliant. But his facial expressions, uh, yeah, sure, I guess they're a little bit over-exaggerated by today's standards. But his facial expression there, it tells the story. Again, it's just a, a mechanism that Lung used to tell the story without words. To tell the story without putting too much exposition on screen and explaining things away to the audience and and simplifying things. You could probably list a top 20 iconic shots from M. That is an amazing sequence and it's one of the most suspenseful. You know, you, you can see Beckert's conflict with himself. You know, that incredible urge, compulsion to act out his fantasy with this little girl stalking her, pulling away, agonising. You're wondering, is he going to get her? Isn't he going to get her? And then you see her mother come and, you know, the air goes out of that balloon and you, you breathe a sigh of relief. But for a good few minutes there, you don't take your eyes off the screen because you're wondering, is he going to get her? And if he gets her, what is he going to do to her? So from the point that you see Beckett trying to look for the madman in the mirror, it's about 15 minutes into the movie, until he leaves his apartment just as his apartment is about to be searched, which is 50 minutes into the movie. That 35 minutes, Peter Laurie is not in the movie. So one full third of the movie there, he's not in the movie. A lot of the rest of the movie, he's shown in these reflections. He's shrouded in some kind of mystery. He's, he's obscured somehow. He's shown in shadow. That's right. For the first half of the movie, you barely see this character. And what we get instead is almost, I suppose, a compilation of different perspectives and attitudes uh, that are going on in the town. And we see the escalation of this panic and this social hysteria. We see neighbours accusing neighbours. We see police searching homes. We see ordinary citizens forming mobs. You know, there's that great scene where the crowd mishear a pickpocket who's being led down by police saying, oh, you know, you shouldn't be wasting time on me. You should be looking after the killer. And then someone in the mob goes, did he just say he's the killer? And then suddenly they're trying to attack him and grab at him because they think he's confessed to being the child killer. And, And it feels so real, this intense paranoia, this intense hysteria. We see it today. All the time. People who form groups are not good in a crisis. And and in a way, they're more frightening than the crisis itself. The reaction is more threatening because it's so powerful. 
it is a self-fulfilling kind of prophecy. If you form a group of like-minded people, then the things that you believe are the things that they believe. So you're just reinforcing your own beliefs, essentially. You're around people who aren't there questioning that, hey, maybe you're not correct. A really basic example is this leads to the idea that, let's say, Muslims are terrorists. And so suddenly people who hang around with other people that say Muslims are terrorists, and then it sparks racism, it sparks this kind of xenophobia. Which is all born out of fear. It is. But this is the kind of stuff that's been happening for centuries with, you know, black people. Yeah. And with women and and with gay people. And I mean, if you put yourself in that situation where other people reinforce your beliefs, you lose that ability to be objective. That's right. And if you want to see how scary a crowd can be that are in survival mode, just look at mother. Mm. You know, the, the, the you know, when you have that many bodies and, and that many people that are trying to get something out of fear, there's nothing more frightening than that. I suggest it would be a good move to ask the public to uh, cooperate with us. What a fine thing for us. We could just do with the public. When I hear their very names, it makes me feel sick. Let's have a quick chat about Lohman. The first time we see Inspector Lohman, he is, he's coming down a staircase and he's elevated above all of these kind of basic criminals. Yes, and he's a raid. During the raid. And he's a rotund man. He has a very distinctive gait. He's a quite imposing presence. And he has a pipe always pressed between his lips. A very distinctive looking pipe. And the criminals who are busted, they repeat his name in unison, kind of mockingly. But from our perspective, it almost looks like slaves or something saying the name of their king. Like a mantra. Lohman. Lohman. Uh, and... And certainly I think the way that Hitler was able to command an audience at the time uh, and get so many people who were, you know, kind of under his spell at the time, uh, it is reflected in that entrance. And there's just real authority and real command to this man. And when we, you know, we next go to Lohmann sitting at a desk and the criminals are just forming an orderly line and coming down and it's just business as usual. It's so routine. Lohmann is so kind of blasé about this and casual and completely unintimidated by this this group of people. So, I mean, we immediately feel like he is kind of world-weary, quite hardened, very, very good at his job. He essentially becomes our, I guess, yang to Beckett's ying. Like, he's, he's... They're, they're both, I suppose you would have to say, the leads in the film, although the film doesn't really give them a lot of screen time but i guess it gives it favors them over over others yeah i think there's three elements to this movie one is the uh, law enforcement the police the government and that is represented best by lohman uh, one is the criminal underworld which is presented best by uh, safecracker and the other is beckett as the outcast yeah And uh, I think the interplay between those protagonists is what we all find most interesting about this movie. Beckett's heinous acts are causing troubles for those criminals, which leads to this raid. They just want to make ends meet. They want to make a living. And they think that they're doing it in a legitimate way. They think that Beckett is the illegitimate criminal, but that their criminality is legitimate because that's all they're trying to do. This is their job. 
that's how you get this disparate group somehow joined together. And there's that famous scene, which I'm sure we'll get to because there's so much to talk about in that scene, the famous Five Heads meeting. And it's such an homage to Godfather 40 years early that it, it's almost outrageous. Uh, but that's how they get together to have this meeting to combat the killer. And during that raid, the barkeeper states that even the girls who solicit are making no money because of what the police are doing. And she says, sure, they solicit, but inside every one of them beats the heart of a mother. Talking about how they would, they can't stand for this person that's killing children. Obviously, they're not going to be acquainted with him in any way. So the killer's not here. I love that line, inside every one of them beats the heart of a mother. And that just really sets apart how the criminals feel about themselves and how they feel about Beckett. Because obviously Beckett is committing these crimes that surely there's no heart inside this man to be doing these things. So I think there's this unspoken agreement that what they do is better than what Beckett does. And I think Lung does such a good job later on of turning that on its head. The film derives a lot of its humour out of that idea, kind of dark humour. The idea that there's this socially accepted form of crime and this aberrant, deviant criminal, like one that's gone a little nuts that they have to dispatch, get rid of immediately. The the barkeeper talking about the prostitutes is a wonderful example of that. But we see that theme come back again and again and again in the film. Make no mistake, there are degrees of crime. And what Beckett does in his action is particularly heinous. That's right. A sex worker is not. And and the fact that it's criminal is something that uh, you and I or we could debate with any person who has any kind of uh, opinion as to whether it's right or wrong that that would be classified as criminal but there are definitely degrees of criminality there are but i mean someone could just as easily argue well okay beckert's killing a child and that is unconscionable to most of us that anyone could do that but say one of these mob bosses is laundering money or bringing in drugs or bringing in alcohol and and this is destroying maybe 20 or 30 or 40 or 100 men So, I mean, you could look at it in that respect and say that what the mob is doing is, at least in terms of numbers, worse. But I think it is, as you say, the act itself that people cannot cope with or tolerate. And fair enough, it is it is intolerable what Beckett is doing. It's it's so perverse. It is so sick. And we do see this kind of crime. It's never gone away. It was a problem in the 30s. It's a problem today. It is just like pedophilia or like any crimes involving children, it elicits a knee-jerk response with most people. It's just, a, it's just something that people get so angry and upset about, and rightfully so. I'm not sure if it's a knee-jerk response, but I know what you mean. It, it elicits a, a very severe... Immediate emotional reaction, the idea of a child being, um, being harmed, being killed, being raped, is just... Yeah. Let's get down to business. I take it you know why we're here and can act on behalf of the organisation you represent. Very well then, I won't waste your time with minor details, for there's much to be decided. Mm-hmm. We've been having a very bad time in the last few months. We haven't had a chance and you all know it. An outsider is out to make trouble, serious trouble. The whole of the police are working day and night chasing this outsider. But in every hotel, in every theatre, in every tin pot cafe, and in every boarding house. In fact, in every spot a damn policeman shouldn't be. You're right, Bravo! This must end, boys, and end soon. We must somehow exterminate this murderer at once. This brings us to 
what I think is the film's most inspired sequence, which is the uh, intercutting of the meeting between the officials being held by the commissioner and the mob being held by the mob boss, and they're both happening at two tables somewhere in Berlin. And it's essentially the same discussion is being had by these two opposing sides who have been drawn together by this one wild animal in the form of this child killer, Beckert. And it is a marvellous scene. Now, what this scene does most importantly is it shows us how interconnected all these different subsets are within the community. We have the killer. He sends a letter to the media. The media publish the letter. And the public panic. The public panic puts pressure on the police force, who then have to intensify their efforts to get the child killer. And this, the intensification of their efforts upsets the mob and the underground criminal world because suddenly they can't do business as normal because they're constantly being raided and having everything confiscated and being put in prison. So now they are put in a position where they have to set their sights on getting rid of this killer so that they can return to doing what they want to do and uh, how they get a profit. It encompasses everything. It just shows us the ripple effects that all of these different factions in this society have on one another. I think that this scene speaks to the power of the killer because, you know, his capture becomes the shared goal of these two forces. But again, it highlights the disassociation between the ordinary criminality like drug dealing and money laundering and prostitution with the sort of crime Beckett is committing. And thirdly, it blurs the line between organised crime and law enforcement, which is touched on again and again, most notably in the climax with the kangaroo court scene where this highly moral debate is being played out between uh, all of these men who are uh, fugitives of the law and criminals and killers, but they're the ones having this moral discussion about should Becker live or die. Lang quite clearly makes an analogy between the government and the justice system as the enemy. He he kind of effortlessly blends the visual with the oral. Um, we're introduced initially to the heads of the criminal organisations during their meeting and we transition to the police and government meeting as the latter finishes the sentence of the former. So we get Safecracker who says, Gentlemen, our members must be able to go about their business again without frantic cops at every turn. I invite... And then it cuts, and the police commissioner continues, Your views, gentlemen. So Safecracker says, I invite your views, gentlemen. Finished by the police. So I don't think you can draw a more direct parallel than that. The, the criminals and the police are finishing each other's sentences. They even finish each other's gesture of the hand, turning the conversation over to the table. Just quickly, I love the introduction of Safecracker here. He's he's late to this meeting, and the others are all talking about him in some kind of mythical way that, you know, he was surrounded by six cops back against the wall, and he's still here today. This guy is an experienced criminal, so we know that there are bad things that these people have done. We're not told what they are, but we are asked to imagine a lot of them. But you would assume that a lot of them are as bad as killing as murder and well i know at one point the defense in the kangaroo court scene near the end the defense attorney says well aren't you um haven't you been indicted for six or seven murders and it's rich coming from you Mm. so you know we can we know at least a few of them have committed murder 
you were talking about the police, the pressure is on the police uh, to, to find the killer. But there's also that awesome scene where the commissioner is on the phone and he's going over all of the steps that the police have taken to try to capture him because they found a bag that had some sweets were in. So they looked at all the lolly shops and they looked at and all of this stuff that... And the concentric circles on the map, the huge area, geography that they have to investigate. It is such a, a great example of the efforts that law enforcement need to go to to track down a lead Mm. Um, and it's also somewhat of a response to people who would claim that certain elements of law enforcement aren't doing their job because you you see exactly the reason that the general public sometimes doesn't get the answers that they want because it is such a a complex series of events that needs to occur to solve a crime. And what's amazing about M is that the amount of components that are in the investigation that you might not necessarily think out of ignorance police back then would have included. Like there's forensic evidence, there's psychological evidence. Uh, The police officer tells the commissioner, we have 15 conflicting eyewitness testimonies. We have 1,500 leads that have been called in. We have woods that are searched, dogs are sent in, homeless shelters are searched, railway stations are policed. And from personal experience, there is uh, this one scene in the film where they're arguing over the colour of uh, Elsie's hat, and one says red and one says green. I, years ago, um, in a previous job, was uh, held up by somebody, and one thing I remember is that the two of the people who gave statements to the police after that differed on the colour of the car that was involved and how one was white and one was blue. You know, you can't get much different than those things. So these kind of small inconsistencies become a pretty big thing. I should also say that this uh, idea of the mob wanting to track down the killer, Fritz Lang actually took it from an actual Berlin news article at the time. And he said about that, it seemed to me such a compelling cinematic motif and material that I was constantly living in fear of someone else exploiting the idea before me. I think he knew what he had and how, because it really is so unexpected. When I remember when I first watched M, so many of the ideas were so fresh and I could not believe that I was watching a film this old. It is entirely, entirely believable the way that it's presented. I mean, you don't think, hey, this system of beggars whatever that's unbelievable that would never happen i mean it presents it in such a way that you go this makes sense yeah it does (laughs) so uh there's a moment in that uh table scene where loman says just thinking of public cooperation makes me puke i think probably the version of m you have is about 110 minutes mine is two so the original version was 117 minutes and there's a seven minute scene that's missing did you read about this um not about the scene that was missing but i know that the the it was cut yeah and this scene was just before that table scene and what it was dealing with was loman dealing with false confessors which apparently while peter Curtin was active there were 200 germans who tried to confess to being the killers and were ultimately proven not to be so uh it made it made a little more sense out of that line because Lohman had been dealing with these nut jobs who were walking into the police station going, I'm the killer, I'm the one, lock me up. Well, that's, that's right. I think it was at that point in M when he says about public cooperation and stuff that the, you get that scene where the, the two are fighting over the red and green hat 
intercut, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, you do. And I mean, by that point, you've seen the public outside of Lumen being complete twats. So you don't worry too much. It's not like it's a where did that come yeah. from? It's not really clear why Lung cut the scene. Some have suggested that he may have found it either redundant or misleading, but he ultimately decided not to include it. Yeah. There are two light bulb moments that are intercut. Uh, and these involve Loman finding the red pencil dust on Beckert's windowsill and the mob getting the phone call that the beggars are on the tail of the killer. So both forces get their identify Beckert at the same time through different means, mm. which I really like. Obviously, before that occurs, there is this setup that the criminals are going to use the beggars that are so prevalent around the city to track down the killer whoever that may be and there's a great shot and i've written a line in my notes and it says david fincher eat your heart out the scene where the criminals are giving the uh, squares around the city to the beggars and they're meeting in this uh, building and there's a shot there and it's absolutely stunning because the size of the camera Uh, You know, it would have been 10 times the size of any camera that's used today. And we're outside this building and we're tracking forward and then we go through the window. You know, special effects was not a concept in 1931. And uh, I just think of so many shots from things like Panic Room where we're going through up floors and through windows and through doors and through keyholes and all of this kind of stuff. And that's what it reminds me of. And then I remember this was 75 years earlier. And it's, um, you know, that's just another astonishing shot. It is. In this movie. To talk again a a little bit about the beggars, I think one of the themes that Long really tries to impress upon uh, the audience is this idea of social responsibility. One of the men at the commissioner's table says most people do not recognise they have a responsibility to protect society's most vulnerable citizens. And the mob, as you say, task the beggars with capturing the killer. And you've got to remember in Germany at this time, the beggars are mostly veterans from the war. They have missing limbs and other wounds that they've received fighting. These are men who gave everything to their country and obviously returned disabled, unable to work, and were essentially cast off into the street. And it's those who owe society nothing that come to its rescue while we see the affluent, the well-to-do classes just getting hysterical and turning against one another and being of absolutely no help to anyone. And this is echoed again when the blind man recognises Beckett's whistling and yells for people to stop him. I just think it's so touching and poignant that this group, who are the lowest people on the food chain, are the ones taking a personal risk to defend a society that rejected them. When, say, Frecker is in that meeting and he states that the beggars will be the ones to, that they rely on to track down Beckett, that meaning is shown in silhouette. And that kind of brings us back to the, uh, or the introduction of Beckett and his presence is shown in silhouette as well. And Safecracker rises and there's this just this dominating figure in the frame. And uh, it's kind of this, you know, generic idea of this shadowy figure in a position of power. But it also does tie into kind of introducing him as a criminal in the way that we know Beckett is a criminal as well. Uh, Obviously in a different way, as we'll see, but that idea that this is a, a shadowy kind of person in the same way that Beckett is. And also... 
that shot is a prime example of the noir, film noir kind of influence um, that this film would have over, I guess, other crime films in uh, years to come. A little schoolgirl talking to her and strolling Don't along. Don't let him get far. Don't let him get out of your sight yes, again. Why? On the day when the child, Elsie Beckman, was murdered, I heard it. That day the man you hear bought a large balloon from me. To talk a little bit about Beckett as, and I am reluctant to say it, but as a sympathetic character. Yes. I think Lung does, if not make him sympathetic, I think he tries to make him understandable on some level or to at least give him a voice for why he's doing what he's he's doing. And I think the best scene that illustrates this is the scene that we've discussed earlier about Beckett looking through the girl in the shop window and, you know, um, when he misses that opportunity, he's visibly shaken and he, he ends up at a cafe and has a drink to compose himself. And he whistles, but his whistling's cut short. And then we see him put his ha- his head in his hands. And he's obscured behind the, this creeping vine that's on this fence. Uh, it really does speak to the idea that his behavior is beyond his control, that he is enslaved, essentially, by his compulsions. He's not in charge, really, ever. You don't ever get the feeling that Beckett is just sm- like smug and confident and loving that he's having all this power over the town. He no. he feels very pathetic. He feels like the most pathetic character in the film, the most non-self-assured character. Hmm. And he looks that way as well. I mean, I'm sure there was a reason that Lung went with Peter Laurie. Mm. So then obviously we get that incredible sequence where the, the homeless guys are now tracking him through the streets as he's got this little girl and he's trying to coax her and doing all the bullshit things he does with buying her lollies and balloons and everything. And uh, at one point, uh, one of the beggars, I don't even know if he's a beggar, he's the, he's the friend of the homeless, of the blind guy who's pointed him out. He chalks the letter M on the palm of his hand and then walks past Beckett and slaps his back and then makes some comment about him littering on the street. Uh, Slipped on an orange peel, and that's why he went into his back. And for the longest time, Beckett doesn't know that he's been marked with the letter M. There's been a lot of discussion about why M. It might stand for murderer, it might stand for mark, it could stand for many things. Did you have any theories on this? I just uh, kind of always took it for granted that it stood for murderer. Yeah, me too. Yeah, That makes most se- the most sense. Uh, I love in that shot as well the the girl that he's with picks up his knife. And hands it, and back, hands to it him, back to him. <laughs> which again is very dark and sad. Mm. Her innocence in that moment is so beautiful. Yeah. You know, she might be handing back to the killer the very device he's going to use to kill her in a few moments. So it's that uh, leitmotif as well that we were talking about earlier that is the uh, the reason that I guess Beckett is captured is because he's whistling this tune and it's heard by the beggar. So there's this idea of sound and no vision and we are presented with this sound but no vision of Beckett. I guess that kind of thematically ties in so well with the technical way in which this film has been made you know you get the sound but you don't get the vision yeah he puts us in the same position as the character the blind character yeah where sound becomes our predominant sensory experience over the visual so therefore we focus more on the sound and i don't think 
that it would have been anywhere near as powerful uh, the idea that this blind man had found him if we weren't presented with such a complex film in terms of sound editing before and up until this point. I think it is the fact that we are presented with such a complex idea of uh, sound editing, something we've never seen before that makes it go, when this uh, blind man who sells balloons is the one that says, hey, that's him, it's very powerful for us. Yes, and it's amazing mostly because your your emotional engagement in the film goes up so high when it's like yes find him like track yeah. him track him track him you're so you're so on board with that moment and you just it, it's very powerful the film just completely engrosses you in that moment and this sequence leads obviously to the extended sequence in the office building yeah one thing about this is the film up until now has been very open and very far-reaching. But what happens now is I think we must get at least 10 or 15 minutes where we are confined to this building. And it still stays true to so many of the different facets that this film has laid before us so far. It is still a procedural film. You know, it goes through, how are we going to get these guards out of here? Okay, what are the things that these guards walk around and do and that we need to continue to do so that the police aren't notified of our presence? At this point, it is taking care of so much of the emotional kind of trajectory of the film, which is we want these, I guess, the police or the criminals to confront Beckett. Beckett needs to be confronted somehow. But it also is doing that police procedural, still. Yes. It's never, never loses sight of the story that it's trying, the stories that it's trying to tell. Uh, And very significantly, Beckett, more than ever in this moment, becomes a very pitiable creature. You know, Peter Laurie has this sort of, I guess you'd have to say, to be polite, unconventional face. (laughs) He's got those giant bug eyes, and he just looks like an insect, a panicked insect who's trying to get off of a... who's been, like, you know, impaled by a needle and is just squirming. And the mob have all of the power and all of the authority in this scene. This whole scene is just waiting for them to capture him. There's really no question that they will. He is totally trapped and ensnared. His fear, his isolation in that moment... You know, in Clockwork Orange, at the end of that film, when you start to feel sad for... Yeah from yeah, Malcolm McDowell, the film almost does that a little bit. It makes you feel sad for him and then makes you hate yourself for feeling sad for him. Mm. So it toys with your emotions in a very uncomfortable and unusual way. He declares that my client acts under compulsion when committing these murders. It is this compulsion that acquits my client. You can't punish a man for a crime for which he is not responsible. All of this, of course, leads us to the kangaroo court scene, which is essentially used by Lung as a means of exploring the idea of capital punishment. And I tell you what, if you ever wanted some very clear, precise and elegant arguments for and against capital punishment. You merely have to look at this film and quote some of the the dialogue from some of the characters here. Practically every perspective on the issue is at some point encapsulated in this one scene by one character or another. The mob take Beckett to an abandoned distillery and he 
finds that there must be about 60 or 70 people on this jury. They've even set it up like a court. They've got the, the long table and they've got the mob bosses sitting behind it. He's even got criminal representation. Yes, in the form of who has the dubious task of defending him. And I love the line where the mob boss says to Beckett, everyone here is an expert in the law. From six weeks in Tagal prison to 15 years in Brandenburg, they'll make sure you get your rights. This is brilliantly funny and clever and dark. Beckett denies the crime, but then he realises that the court are going to kill him. He demands to be handed over to the police and everyone laughs at him and they say, yeah, you'd like that, wouldn't you? So you can plead insanity and spend the rest of your life being cared for by the state. My goodness, that could have been said yesterday in the papers. People still resent, um, you know, mentally ill killers getting, uh, you know, sent to a mental institution rather than jail. Or, or released. Or released, yeah. And one of the most famous moments in this, in this scene is Beckert's monologue, where we really do get a full understanding of the idea that he is, in a sense, a victim of his own deviancy. I think the best line in the script for me is when he says, I can't escape from myself. And then the mob boss says to this, uh, a man who claims that he is compelled to destroy the lives of others, such a man should be extinguished. Such a man must be obliterated. Aren't they horrible words? Yeah. Extinguished and obliterated. Yes, very strong. His defence lawyer says, a man cannot be punished for that which he is not responsible. I'm saying the man is sick and you turn a sick man over to a doctor, not an executioner. I think he actually receives a very good defence. He does, very good. <laughs> but interestingly, even though Lung was famously anti-death penalty his whole life, I don't know that she is necessarily a mother of one of his victims, although mm. she's, she says it as if she is. But he lets her have the last word, which is about talk to the mothers who are never going to have their children back. Ask them what, what should happen to him. You know, They're the ones who have paid the ultimate price. Uh, it's very interesting that Lung tells this or, or gives us this argument in such an open-handed way and almost goes against his own personal feelings about this issue. Not quite, because it's very objective, like the whole film's been. But the fact that he gives her the last word is almost pro-death penalty. Oh, look, I don't think you could really draw that analogy i think this last uh, sequence is particularly sympathetic to beckett and you haven't had a lot of speaking roles for uh, beckett through this movie um he's got a few lines here and there and you don't get him on screen as a sympathetic character until i think uh, the these close-ups where he's in peril the speaking roles so far have gone to loman and they've gone to safecracker but here in what could be Beckett's ultimate moment, uh, I think the framing is really important. Beckett is uh, framed really close up. His face is a contorted mess as he pleads his case for insanity, for an inability to control his uh, urges. And the mob is framed wide as an unending sea of unsympathetic faces who likewise don't deserve our sympathy. This scene is so powerful and that's what turns the film on its head. Uh, it's not really a serial killer film. It's not really a police procedural. That's just how this story is told. It is a, a, a questioning of authority, but it's also a morality play. And I think that that's what this scene achieves. It gives... Without this scene, I don't think there's the weight. I think there's a really brilliant 
police procedural serial killer movie. But here it becomes something else. Here it becomes something far greater. Yeah. Well, far more psychologically dense. Hmm. Far more about human nature, human compulsion, human desire. That's right. Justice and the protection of the law. I mean, I agree with everything you're saying, although we do get some close-ups of the, of those jurors. They aren't impersonal completely. No, they're not. They're not. You're right. But I think as a, as a group, you've got these ideas of the group, the mass uh, criminal, I guess, sea of criminals, uh, and Beckett, who is clearly in this scene shot as a sympathetic character. I think what's great about the scene is that you couldn't definitively say that the scene is manipulating the audience to be on one side or another. Mm. You could speak to every single person could have a different feeling. You know, some will be on the side of the jury and some would, I suppose, be on the side of Beckert and the defence attorney who was saying he needs a hospital. And that's told through this great back and forth point counterpoint kind of argument that goes on for 10 minutes. And it's highly moral and highly logical and considered arguments. It's not at all what you would expect from a group of underground criminals. Mm. Which, of course, again, is very darkly comical. It's, it's incredible when you look, set, sort of step back from the film how much humour Lung manages to, to evoke out of this incredibly dark, twisted story. Whose side were you on? Were you on a side? I don't think I was on a side. I mean, we should say, we should tell people... Well, that- I, look, I definitely was not uh, looking forward to Beckett being <laughs> being extinguished by this criminal underworld. Uh, not at all. I, I mean, I was, I was glad when he was saved by the police, the hand on his shoulder. Do you think that that's because you are, and I know you are, anti-death penalty and always have been? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I don't agree in mob rule, mob mentality. I don't agree in... Uh, uh, State-legislated you- murder. Yeah, I don't agree that, you know, an eye for an eye. Yeah, but state-legislated murder is different from mob mentality. Yes. Peter Laurie's performance as Beckett here makes Beckett a believable, sympathetic character. Um, So there's definitely... uh... I think Beckett is a good case for... A good case against the death penalty. Mm. But you... I mean, I'm not... I am I am generally against the death penalty only because, really, it's about um, where, where it is used in most countries in the world. It's just about how much money you have as to whether or not you get you get the death penalty or not. And everyone, the colour of your skin. Yeah, everyone on death row are poor black people mm. in America. So, I mean, death penalty doesn't work. It's bullshit. But having said that, there are some crimes that I read about. I am so ready for that person to be executed. I think of people like Diane Downs who um, murdered her two children, three children. I think one of them survived, actually, to testify against her. And she did it because she was seeing some guy who didn't want her to have kids. You know, there's nothing insane about it. There's nothing psychotic. It's not Andrea Yates who was mentally disturbed when she drowned her five children. This is somebody who is just sociopathic and selfish and vicious and evil, and she doesn't deserve to be alive. I would, I do uh, relish the idea of her sitting in isolation for 24 hours a day for seven years until they finally get around to marching her to the chair or wherever. I, I, a part of me loves that, feels very vengeful towards people that commit these kinds of crimes. Daniel Morecambe's killer. I mean, I would, I, I loved reading recently that some some prisoner threw uh, threw acid on his face or, or hot water 
boiled his face. I loved reading that. I love the idea of him being in agonizing pain every day because I am so uh, upset and, and, and horrified and repulsed by the particulars of what he did to, to Daniel Morecambe and to the children who came before him. So I, I go up and down with death penalty. My dad is very famously for the death penalty. And I always play devil's advocate with him because I know that ultimately state legislated murder does not work. They may, they may deserve to die, but uh, I don't believe that uh, we have the right to put people to death. Like that documentary, Dear Zachary, I would have killed Dr. <laughs> Shirley. I would have killed her before she ever got her hands on her son. Let's move on. Let's move on this from is this. This an interesting debate. <laughs> and this is what the film wants us to talk about. <laughs> well. Lung says, have this conversation. It's an important conversation. I, I don't think there is a case for the death penalty anywhere. Because? Because potentially it could be wrong. And if it's wrong once, just one time out of a hundred, then that's worth not having it at all. Absolutely. Essentially, you're looking at two things. You're looking at how do you take away the threat of what this person is doing or how do you punish the person for what they have done? The most important thing is taking away the threat of what they are doing. Make sure that it doesn't happen again. And if you can do that by getting them off the street, great. Okay, the punishment comes second. The idea that this person needs to be killed for what they've done, that comes second. You've already achieved the main result, which is to stop that threat, to stop these these crimes from happening, okay? And the studies that have been done have proven that the death penalty is not a deterrent for people that are going to commit these crimes. It doesn't work in that sense. The argument for the death penalty doesn't say, oh, well, if you put these people to death, nobody's going to do that thing. Well, that's been proven false time and time and time again, hundreds of times throughout history. But you know what else has been proven false is that jail time stops people from reoffending. Absolutely. But we're not talking about... You're, when you're talking about giving people the death penalty, you're not talking about the people that will get re-released into society. We're not talking about rehabilitation at that point. Even though I think both of us believe that prison should be used for rehabilitation. Yeah. You're not talking about that when you're talking about people who you would otherwise send to death. You're saying, hey, let's remove them from society. And uh, I believe with the number of appeals that it takes, the number of uh, the burden of proof, uh, and even to campaign for the death penalty, I believe the cost of that bullet or that injection is greater than the cost of life imprisonment to the to the state. Uh, when you are looking at the death penalty, the main reason that anybody wants the death penalty is punishment. I agree. And the the main reason that I don't think it's fair to say hey let's have the death penalty is because it's not up to you and me to punish this person as long as you remove them from society that is i guess that is enough of a uh success yeah look intellectually i know that the death penalty is not a good idea intellectually i know that it is better not to have state legislated executions i also know that personally if somebody in my life was taken away from me by a stranger. If you've got a personal stake in it, you're going to have more of an emotional response. Yeah. And therefore, I mean, this is why in so many instances that there is, uh, you're not allowed to work in a, in a field where you have a conflict of interest, where you have some personal stake in something because you are not objective. Mm, because we shouldn't make decisions emotionally. We should make them lucidly. With information. Yes. 
It seems incredible that a man could commit crime after crime without someone, a landlady, a neighbor, or even a relative suspecting him. It was common practice in the early 30s to shoot a film in several different languages on the set, using different actors if necessary, but the same setups and lighting and everything. Even though subtitling and dubbing were possible at the time, distributors thought audiences wouldn't find these, or they would find these techniques off-putting. Fritz Lang did not shoot an English version and French version of his. He just shot it the way that we see it. But French and English language versions were ultimately made about a year after, uh, with no involvement from Lang. So this means the directors took the film, they cut it into pieces, they reshot entire scenes with as many of the same actors and cast and you know setups as they could uh, in English and French, and then they reassembled the film. Uh, and these versions were were shown uh, at the time in in France and England, and then lost. They were lost for many many years until Criterion started to put together their release of M. And they found a French version, uh, and then sometime later they found the English version. And by all accounts, these are really inferior, inferior versions of the film. I brought up earlier about the Universal films. Yes. And it is very similar to Hollywood and the Universal films, and particularly Dracula is a great example of that. Dracula, which starred Bela Lugosi, uh, was shot during the daytime on a soundstage. And at night time, when everybody from the American production of Dracula went home, they shot the Spanish production of Dracula and then released that. Uh, it was released as the same film in Mexico and Spanish-speaking countries. Obviously a completely different film, directed by somebody else, starring somebody else in Spanish. But it was released as the Hollywood Universal Dracula film. So it wasn't something that was only done in Europe or only done in Germany. Different markets at the time had different expectations, whereas today... And I'm not sure if it's got something to do with budget or if it's got something to do with uh, movies not necessarily being the prime source of entertainment. Foreign language films are accepted these days. Yeah, I think also it probably has to do with filmmakers having learned or distributors having learned that people can tolerate subtitling and even dubbing and that that's probably preferable and more sensible and logical than reshoot, like then shooting three different versions of the film on the same day. And also I guess there was... Uh Less cost involved in uh, the the 1930s and 40s and 50s in the days of the studio system. There was less cost involved because, hey, we own the sets, we own the actors, we own the studio, let's just shoot another version at night time. They had all of those props there to be able to do that. The only cost to them, essentially, was uh, was the film, the roles of film. Well, M has had a very long and varied release history. Beginning on the 11th of May in 1931, where it premiered in Berlin in a 117-minute cut. It was two years later, 1933, that it premiered in the United States. It played for two weeks in German language with English subtitles before being replaced in cinemas with an English-language version, which uh, we've just said Fritz Lang had very little to do with. A French-language version was also shot and released in Europe. In 1960, it was re-released to cinemas in a 98-minute cut, and an original 96-minute cut negative is preserved in the German Federal Film Archive. The most complete version available today is on the excellent Blu-ray releases by both the Criterion Collection and Masters of Cinema. 
These rely on a print restored in 2000 by the Netherlands Film Museum, the Federal Film Archive, Cinematheque Suisse, Kirsch Media and the ZDF ARTE and released by Janus Films and that is a 109 minute cut. Despite the Criterion Masters of Cinema Disc being our most complete available versions right now, in 2013 Kino Lorber did the cinema rounds with a 111 minute digital restoration in North America. Uh, This version is not yet available on home video, but hopefully we will all be able to access it soon enough. Of course, the film holds a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, as it should. We should not underestimate the importance or the brilliance of this movie. It is one of the high watermarks of cinema and must be regarded as such. It is responsible for innovating many techniques regarding the use of sound, as well as perfecting many many techniques involving the use of lighting. Furthermore, it presents a moral ambiguity despite dealing with the darkest, most taboo subjects of not only our Western culture, but of humanity in general. It is an intelligent film which asks questions without directing us to answers. It lingers. It's difficult to find contemporary reviews of films as old as M, but I did manage to track down one from the New York Times in 1933 from the American premiere. It's credited to MH, but I couldn't find out who MH is who used to write for the New York Times. It says it was produced in 1931 by Fritz Lang and, as a strong cinematic work with remarkably fine acting, it is extraordinarily effective. But its narrative, which is concerned with a vague conception of the activities of a demented slayer and his final capture, is shocking and morbid. Mr Lang has left to the spectator's imagination the actual commission of the crimes. It is regrettable that such a wealth of talent an imaginative direction was not put into some other story, for the actions of this murderer, even though they are left to the imagination, are too hideous to contemplate. So that film, obviously, I had more to uh, say about the thematic content than about the technical side of it. One current piece of writing that I found particularly interesting is by Douglas Buck for Offscreen Magazine, and he singles out Laurie's monologue for praise. With his final desperate pleadings before the underworld kangaroo court, Peter Lorre delivers a maniacal, anguished, eye-popping performance that is both overtly expressionistic and deeply emotionally honest. It's worthwhile for modern audiences, often dismissive of early theatrical acting as old-fashioned, to see a performance like this, if just to witness how, when done right, it can create not only the same power and rawness as any nat- modern naturalistic style, but add something larger than life, iconic, almost mythic in nature. Laurie is so perfect in the part, it's not surprising it catapulted him into fame, nor that he was never able to crawl out from its all-powerful shadow. Finally, the box office. Um, there are no box office figures for this film's release that I could find. <laughs> so, uh, are you ready for the quiz? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go first. Sure. Which director, previously profiled in this podcast, cites Fritz Lang as one of his greatest influences and interviewed him in 1974? Hitchcock. No. Oh. William Friedkin. Oh, okay. Love yeah. In which American city is the 1951 Joseph Losey remake of M set? Oh, shit. I have no idea. I'm going to guess. San Francisco. Oh, you're so close. Really? Yeah. Go down the road to Los Angeles. Oh, I should have gone LA. That was the most (laughs) obvious, but I thought I... Why did Peter Lorre leave Germany? Uh... Peter Laurie, oh, he, he uh, left Germany because he was Jewish. That's right. <laughs> One for you, zero for me. 
Okay. In Germany, the Nazi Party came to power in 1933 and banned the film in 1934 after Lung's exile to the United States. In which year was the film eventually released again in its home country? Oh, gosh. 66? Is that right? You got it. Oh, my God, I'm amazing. It had been heavily edited to include a musical score, more sound effects, and be displayed in the television-friendly 1.33 to 1 rather than its original 1.19 to 1 aspect ratio. So they kind of hacked it up. I can't believe you got that. Well, I did read it. Yeah. So, uh, okay, these, I guess, our final questions will determine who the winner is because we're both on one each. Uh, What tune does Beckett whistle? In the Hall of the Mountain King. Oh, goodness. Pressure's on for me now. In which French New Wave Masters film did Fritz Lang play himself? Contempt. Very good. <laughs> Have you got another question? Because we're going to need to... Uh, yes, I do. All right, tiebreaker. All right, so uh, which Woody Allen film is an homage to German Expressionism? Shadows and Fog. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> True or false? Oh, thank God. Both the 1931 and 1951 versions of M were produced by the same person. That's true. Very good. They were both produced by Seymour Nebenzahl, who also produced Lang's The Testament of Dr. Mabuse. And he was also forced into exile, similarly to Lang, in 1933. He continued producing in France and later in Hollywood. My goodness. Well, I had a fifth question, but it was the same question you asked me about Jean-Luc Godard's film. Oh, we're just going to have to call it a tie. (laughs) That's our first tie, I think. Okay, I've got one more question. So let's say if you get this right, you can win it, okay? Thank you, thank you. It's said that Lung was a sadist towards his actors. Mm. You've already referenced this, but how many times did the director have Peter Laurie throw down the concrete steps at the climax of the film? (laughs) Oh, well, I only read that he did it once, but maybe it was more than that. It's said that he did it... A dozen times. Oh, that's ridiculous. Why wouldn't Peter Laurie have walked away? Those were concrete steps. Peter Laurie apparently was asked by Fritz Lang about 20 years later to appear in one of his American movies and said no. I did read that as well. Yeah. So I guess there's uh, maybe some truth to that, but let's call it a tie. All right. So out of five. Easy five. Yeah, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Mm. Uh, it's just, I mean, look, we've we've gone through all of our reasons why this film is amazing. All we can say, dear listeners, is if you haven't seen it, first of all, you shouldn't have gotten this far through the podcast. We but- might have spoiled it for you. <laughs> <laughs> but please, please, track it down and see it. You know what? Even just buy it outright. You're not going to be disappointed. If you love film, there's just no way you won't find something in this film to cherish. We're done here, so I'm going to leave you to wrap it up i'm gonna head out and smoke some of my ariston cigarettes (laughs) well you enjoy that next month we're going to be looking at barbara koppel's 1976 oscar-winning documentary harlan county usa which is about the coal miners strike in kentucky this is a pretty obscure film i've personally never seen it damien loves this film though um i would have him say a word about it but he's currently outside with his cigarettes so uh, we'll catch you. We'll catch you next month. And uh, thanks again. You look after yourselves. It's been a pleasure. See ya.